Hebrews chapter 11, Genesis 22. Uh, what I want to do right now is we're going to uh, shift gears. We're going to take a look at this little passage here. I'm going to read two passages of text, and then I'm going to pray. Then we're going to get to work on what's going on here. Uh, we have been looking over the past few weeks from Hebrews chapter 11 at various uh, snapshots, various vignettes, various little character sketches of people that have trusted God, that have taken God at his word, and have lived by faith following God, and uh, because they've seen God as a big God. And what we're looking at now today is Abraham. Abraham's a guy that has been given the majority of airtime in Hebrews chapter 11. There's a good reason for that. He is called the father of the faithful. Uh, you know, little kids sing about him as Father Abraham. If you've been, had any type of church background culture, you know the song Father Abraham. I promise you we will not sing it. But the point is, is that Abraham's a very important guy. He's an important guy. The writer of Hebrews uh, thinks he's an important guy. And we're, gonna, we're going to be looking at Abraham's life today and why he's so significant as being a man of faith, trusting God, taking God at his word. So with that being said, uh, Genesis chapter 22, beginning at about verse 1. I'm going to read down about the first eight or so verses. And then we're going to jump backwards and then take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, let's do this. Verse 1 says, After these things God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering as one of the, mount, on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and he went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham and his young men uh, said, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go up over there, and we will worship, and we'll come back to you again. And Abraham took the, word of the, the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said to him, here am I, my son, he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? For the burnt offering. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both went with them up together. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Read this, and then I'm going to pray. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact, or was in the act of offering up his son... Of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Father, we ask you right now that you'd help us just to understand this text. We need your insight. We need your counsel. We need your wisdom. And so, Father, just help our hearts and our minds to be fixed upon the things that you'd have to speak to us. Pray that you'd help me to be able to communicate and convey these things clearly. God, anything that I say that would just uh, divert from you or divert from the text or in any way uh, misapply emphasis on things that are not meant to be emphasized, God, I pray that you would even now forgive me, uh, but enable me right now. Help me to be able to speak clearly uh, things that you have in your word and let our hearts uh, cling on to these things and trust you and love you uh, through them, because of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. The emphasis that I want to focus on here as we look at this particular passage, I think it's very important to kind of note as it starts off, is that it essentially tells us that this is a test. 
Abraham is going through a test. I mean, it starts off right there and it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. And so what I want for us to kind of keep in our mind is that what's going on with Abraham here is his faith, his faith, his confidence in God is actually being put to the test. Now, before we kind of look at this little vignette, what I want to do is I want to stand back a little bit from the text and get a little bit of a perspective on why uh, the writer of Hebrews is even trying to draw our attention to this particular incident in the life of a guy that lived, you know, some 2,000 years before the guys uh, to whom he's writing to, the people to whom he's writing to. And I think the reality is this, is that the people in the first century, these are Christians. They came to know Jesus. They were living in a culture that in a lot of ways was very hostile towards Christian doctrine, towards Christian, Christian concept. And what was going on is that a lot of these were Jews. Uh, they were brought up in Hebraism, and they understood God in terms of uh, not through the life of Jesus. And so what had happened was a lot of these people were getting converted. converted. They knew Jesus. They were trusting Christ. And as time kind of moved on, moved forward, uh, there were people in the culture that were threatening uh, to sort of disassociate themselves with people, to kind of push them out of culture, uh, to not do business with them anymore. Perhaps some people were even being threatened w- by their livelihood. Uh, their jobs are going to be lost. Uh, maybe even some more violent types of things were going on in terms of by way of threat. And what was going on is these people were being tempted now to kind of downplay Jesus, to not place so much of an emphasis upon Christ, to kind of pull back a little bit, retreat a little bit, and not really emphasize the importance and the significance of Jesus. In other words, uh, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, listen, you guys got to remember, Christianity is hard. It's not going to be easy. There will be moments where it will get tough. There will be times when trusting God, looking to God will get tough. After all, consider Jesus. This is the whole point. He's going to summarize all of that in chapter 12 where he will literally say just that. Look at Jesus. Even Jesus, when trying to obey God, encountered difficulty, hardship, and pushback. Just like you will encounter difficulty, hardship, and pushback from the culture. Okay, does that make sense? So some of us will be tempted to downplay God's command. Some of us will be tempted to pull away from what God has desired for our lives. Some of us will be tempted to sort of retreat a little bit, to not be bold for God, to not emphasize the greatness of God in our lives because it'll get hard. It'll just simply be that. It will be hard, life will get tough, and things won't be as easy as what other things may promise they might provide. Does that make sense? So our temptation will be to push back, pull back, retreat. So the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, listen, even Jesus encountered hardship, but Jesus is not the only one, because everybody encountered hardship. Anybody that tried to follow God encountered hardship. I mean, look at Abel. He offered a sacrifice. He ended up getting killed for that. Look at Noah. He built a ship in the middle of the desert. I mean, who builds ships in the middle of the desert? But he did it by faith. He has people made fun of him. He has people mocked him. Yes, people thought the old man was losing his mind. But, you know, he did it. He did it. He trusted God. And he goes on. Even Sarah, she's an old lady. But she trusted that God could actually give her a baby even at 90 years old. That's his point. Sure, people mocked her. Sure, people came against her. Sure, people kind of looked at the circumstances and thought, you're fools. You're fools to follow this God. He's asking of you the impossible. So the issue that I want to bring to your attention, your mindset in terms of thinking about this is testing, trial, hardship. 
I honestly wish I could find some sort of a subject matter that would at least relate to maybe what some of you are going through, right? Some of you are like, trials, I don't know anything about that. But the reality is, this is exactly where most of us are at. Trials, hardships. You know, we, we want to know how to get through them. We want to know how to deal with them. If you're here, you're like, I, don't, I haven't gone through many trials. My life's been pretty easy. Cheer up, you will. They're coming. They will come, I promise you. The reality is if you love God, you serve God, you find yourself trying to hold on to God's standard, God's life, you will encounter trial at some point. It's this tension. You will find yourself at the middle of the tension. And some of us will be tempted to give up. Some of us will be tempted to give in. Some of us will be tempted to retreat and to surrender our values, to surrender God's commands, to sort of surrender and just give in to what seems and appears natural, i.e., Paul puts it this way, the flesh, to give in, to walk according to what seems most appropriate to me, which is the flesh. Abraham did the same thing. He was looking for a baby, didn't have a baby. His wife suggested, why don't you sleep with my handmaiden, Hagar? You can have a baby with her. He did. She ended up having a baby. It caused all sorts of problems. Any types of circumstances like that, polygamous relationships are always oppressive, have always been the least appropriate way of doing marriage. Anybody's thinking about polygamy, don't. It's a bad way to go. It never worked out, all right? Always was oppressive. The women always ended bad, all right? The point that I would make is this, is we will encounter trials. We will. So what I want to try to do is I want to prepare you guys so that when you encounter difficult times, hardships and trials, you'll know how to come out on top the way Abraham did. So that you can succeed, so that you can be victorious, so that you can sort of walk in the same stature of Abraham, which is coming out on top. Again, I said this from the very beginning of looking at these little character uh, snapshots, that none of these guys were perfect. All of them had moments of failure and setback, all of them. So this is not about saying, look, be like Abraham. You can get some sort of moralistic knowledge following the life of Abraham because he was a super rock star. And if you follow his example, you can be just like him. That's not the point. The point is not to somehow exemplify these guys and say they're rock stars. Follow them. The point is to look at it and say Jesus is all time. Jesus is big, powerful. And God even uses weak people that fail, that are normal They're just regular common people who have faith, place confidence in a really big, great God. And God comes out on top. That's the point. So with that being said, I want to look at basically three things. The first thing that we're going to look at this morning by way of sort of jumping in is I want to kind of look at this idea of the reality of these tests. The reality of these tests. So the most obvious of it is this, that yes, you'll go through tests. You will go through these tests. But the question I kind of want to kind of look at real fast is, is trying to understand or discern where these tests come from, where they come from. Uh, before we jump into that, I want to kind of get some sort of a uniform um, definition as to what a test is, and here's the way I would describe it. It's really showing weakness for the purpose of growing forth strength. Showing forth weakness for the purpose of giving forth strength. What you need to understand is all throughout the Bible... Uh, you got to understand, this is how the Bible works, is that there are two types of people that give tests. Um, in the Bible, you got God who gives tests, and God gives tests for the purpose of showing weakness, but ultimately for the purpose of helping, strengthening. you got the devil who gives tests 
but he doesn't care about your blessing, your benefit, your help. He actually demonstrates weakness to exploit your weakness so that when you're weak, he can kick you when you're down so that you end up sinning. And when you sin and you feel really bad about yourself, then he accuses you. His point is to just simply exploit weakness to get you to sin. That's all he cares about. He's not really trying to help you. And he's not really trying to aid you or strengthen you, build you up or get you moving forward. He's just really trying to destroy you. And the Bible basically makes this distinction between the two different types of tests. I'll give you an example. That for, for this particular case study here in Hebrews, it says that God tested Abraham. It's actually the same word test that was also used uh, when Jesus went through the wilderness. And Jesus was tempted or tested by the devil. It's also the same word that appears in the book of James. Um, and so we need to be able to discern the two different types of testings. Here's what James says in James chapter 1 verse 13. He says, let no one say to you when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor he himself tempts no one. So if you look at that and you just sort of take that out of context, you're like, well, see, I thought the Bible says God doesn't tempt or God doesn't test. You've got to read the whole context. And the whole context, I think, helps us understand. The point of the matter is, as he finishes up his statement there, and he says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed into his own desires and basically ends up sinning. And then sin gives birth to kind of this rebellion. So the point that I think James is saying is that God tests, but not like the devil. The devil tests in a way to get you to trip up, to fall to sin. That's not how God tests. It's not the way God tests. So if you're going through a circumstance in your life and you're constantly falling down and you are sinning in the midst of that, it's very possible, probable, that Satan, the devil, whoever, probably not Satan, but one of his people working under him, uh, on his payroll, are causing you to tempt. And you are biting the hook, yet in reality you forget the fact that even though that there's a nice big chunk of something there that looks really tantalizing there's a hook hidden in there so you bite the bait forgetting the fact that there's a hook and you end up sinning you gave into that temptation or that testing rather than coming out on top but the way that God tests is to try in order to help us to become better okay give me give you another example another thing that we're told that we should do when we encounter these types of tests is that we should not uh, be surprised here's what uh Peter says he says, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes to test you as though some sort of strange thing has happened to you. Peter himself, basically in the context of hardship, he's writing to a bunch of Christians that also are going through tough times. He's like, you shouldn't be shocked. I mean, trials will come. Life will be hard. There'll be difficulties. You will encounter various circumstances that arise in your life and you're, you're not gonna know how to navigate through these things. It will feel tough. It will feel like a fiery trial. It'll feel like as if somebody, you know, turned up the heat underneath you and you are you're baking you're getting destroyed you feel like you're walking through hot coals of fire and he says, don't be shocked by that the third thing that I think we should be aware of is that um, we should recognize that these things oftentimes create sort of a clarity in our minds first Peter chapter 1 verse 13 says this prepare your minds for action be sober-minded set your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you and so Peter again sort of reminds us and by way of context of suffering there's something about when tests come, when difficulties immediately strike us, that we immediately move into a mind of soberness. I'll give you an example. Imagine driving down the road, and all of a sudden a car pulls out right in front of you, and you know, you're driving down the road, you're filling with your radio, texting, God forbid, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, don't talk on your phone. It drives me absolutely nuts when people drive 40 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour road. This is a total 
diversion. I will get back on track. But the point of the matter is, I just needed a rant, or I had to get that off my chest. That's my confession right now for this morning. So as we move forward, you people make me really frustrated, all right? That's all I'm trying to say. Back on track is that if you're fiddling around with stuff, you're texting on the phone, messing around with your radio, and all of a sudden a car pulls out in front of you, you immediately swerve out of the way to avoid some sort of contact or accident. What happens? You're immediately sobered. Immediately, all your focus, all your attention, you stop texting, stop talking on the phone, stop messing around with the radio, stop looking out the window, stop doing your stuff, and you immediately focus on the moment. That's what tests do. I'll give you an example. The people that I meet that immediately start getting their life straight with God are usually those that find themselves confronted by radical tests. Radical tests. It's the dude that gets found out he's been into porn. Immediately, his life changes. There's a new clarity, a new focus. He realizes, I got found out. I got to change. I can't do this anymore. Starts putting filters on his computer. Starts realizing he's got to change actions, change the times that he's on his computer, change the things that he's doing, find accountability, get involved in a Bible study, read his Bible more because he's not doing it right. Why? Because that moment of trial brought about also a moment of clarity. Does that make sense? Amen? All right. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. And so the reality is, is that tests have this propensity to bring about clarity. The old King James, I love it. Sober-mindedness means you're not drunk. Not drunk with thoughts of everything else. Not drunk with scatteredness. You're sober in your mind. You pay attention. That's the thing. Tests have this uncanny ability to bring about a sharpness. An ability to pay attention to what God has to say to you in that moment. Amen? Amen. All right. So the reality is of these tests. The second thing I want you to notice is the nature of these tests. The nature of these tests. All right. I'm going to give you another kind of uh, phrase to think about. The nature of these tests really is this. It's when God's promises or God's commands seem to contradict God's promises. Okay, say it again. When God's commands seem to contradict God's promises, that's a test. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Genesis uh, chapter 22, verse 1 says this. God tested Abraham and he said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I show you. Is that a command or is that a promise? It's a command, right? It's a command. God says, what does God say? Go offer your son. It's a command. Just go ahead and do this. But you got to remember, the writer of Hebrews summarizes uh, many, many years of Abraham's life. And here's the way he summarizes it. So I'll just use what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, even though God said in Hebrews 11 verse 18, even though God said, "Though though Isaac, or through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So that's the promise. So his point is this, is that the promise of God is through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. You will have children and children's children through Isaac. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through Isaac, uh, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Through Isaac, uh, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. You're going to have a humongous, ginormous family that sort of comes out of the lineage of Isaac. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Okay? So the conflict comes when Abraham's told, go offer him up as a sacrifice. So my point is this, is when God's promises seem to contradict God's commands, you know that you're in a moment of trial. 
Let me try to bring this into your life, all right? I'll give you a couple examples of promises that are taken from the New Testament. Here's one, next slide. Romans 8.28 says this, those who love God, all things work according together for good. Those who love God, called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. Not evil, for good. I'll give you another one. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. These are promises. God's promise comes to us. If you're in Christ, again, these, make sure you understand, these are not for everybody. These promises are for believers. And again, it's through Jesus, it's those who love God. If you love God, these apply to you. You are in this moment where promise comes to you, and God says, I will supply all your needs. And yet the command seems to contradict. Let me give you an example. In today's culture, it would be like this. Let's say, you know, for you to follow the command of God, to live with integrity, to... Be honest in your dealings with business or making deals. You know, you own a company or you're a salesman. If you know to be honest, could actually cut into your margin, your profit margin. If it means that you might not get as big of a kickback or as much of a commissions check. Because if you're honest, you might not make the sale. You might not get the deal. And therefore, you might not receive the money i.e. the promises of God. You won't be provided for it. It will appear that way. It will appear as if to be honest could mean that you will not be provided for. The promises of God may not be opened up and flowing in your life to do what God says to do, which is to be honest. Let me give you another example. It's very common. Uh, There's this mentality even in today's culture. It's like, And I deal with this a lot of times, especially in our church. A lot of single people, a lot of college-age people, a lot of middle-aged, after-college, trying to figure out life type people. And one of the most common ones is this. Is if I don't have sex, or if I don't push myself forth to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then maybe I may not get married. I may not have a spouse. I may not have children. I mean, everything seems to be moving forward and progressing. And For me to be honest, for me to live with integrity, for me to avoid or to abstain sexual relationships or to abstain from even an emotional type of relationship that may be uh, bad may mean that I will not get the promises of God. I may not get the blessing. Does this make sense? So to step out walking in confidence, trusting God and his command may appear as if you will be withheld blessings of God's promise. So the point that I want you guys to think about when it comes to this type of stuff, because this is really where we're at. If this is where you find yourself, one of the best ways, if I can summarize it this way, one of the best ways to determine what's going on in your life is that if you, you, one of the best ways to know if you're in a test is if it looks like, if it looks like or appears to obey God's command may result in a death. You're in God's gymnasium. He's the trainer. You're in God's classroom. He's the teacher. To give you another illustration, you're on your heavenly daddy's lap as he's trying to teach you lessons to obey. Does that make sense? Because he loves you. And he's wanting us to navigate the tension between his promises 
in his command. That's where Abraham was at, navigating the tension between the promises of God and the command of God. They appeared to contradict one another. One appeared, the command appeared to cancel out or abort or destroy the promises of God. And what Abraham does is he says, I don't understand how it's all going to work out, but I know that God's good. I know that God's proven himself, so I'm going to trust him. That's what Abraham chooses to do. That's what Abraham forges forth ahead saying that he's going to do. And yet one of the things that oftentimes we do in terms of coming back at this, at God, we say things like this. Well, if God is loving, if God really loves me, then why would God cross me in these areas? Why would God not just give me these things? It feels, here's what I hear all the time, it feels right. It feels right. It feels good. It feels, how could what feels so right be so wrong? How could that? And we wrestle with that. We struggle with that. And here's what it does, is it presupposes that my conventional wisdom and understanding of life and how things are, are somehow superior to God's. Do you understand that? It presupposes that. There's another word for that that just basically is prideful. Just arrogance. To presuppose, it's like my kid, when my kid was like five years old, to say, I want you to do this, don't play out in the street. And they're like, you have no idea what you're talking about. The street's better than the backyard. Are you kidding me? You have no clue what you're talking about. You have absolutely no clue what you're talking about. And the reality is, that's kind of how we are. We're like, God, illicit affairs feel great. God's like, they're not great. They will destroy you. They will destroy generations to come. Because if you've got kids and you have an illicit relationship outside of marriage, whether it's emotional or sexual or whatever, it will destroy. It will bring death. God says, I love you, and I don't want you to bring death. I don't want death to reign in your life or in your kid's life in generations to come. Some of you, if you are from families that were divorced, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You are the offspring of that type of thing. I was. My parents divorced. I know what it's like. I know the pain. Watching my dad deal with this stuff. It was hard. It was very hard growing up. The reality is because sin has this propensity, this proclivity to keep wrecking havoc for generations and generations to come. The only thing that changes it is repentance, confession of sin, trust and confidence in Christ on a daily basis. That's what changes it. So here's what ends up happening. Abraham is realizing that it's gotta tr- he's got to trust God. But if you look at your life and you're like, I just can't see how God would be loving and tell me to not do this. Let me just say this to you real quick. If you have a view or a perspective of God that love equals him letting you do whatever it is that you think feels right, you don't have God. You don't have a God. What you have is a projection of your own concept. Really all you are doing is worshiping yourself. You are worshiping your perspectives, things that you think are right. You're projecting them up on a screen, and you are looking at life through contact lenses that you own yourself created and saying, this is how God is. I view life through the the created lenses I made. You don't have God. You don't have God. It's a path that leads to death. This is why God loves us so much. He comes to shatter to destroy, to do away with our false perceptions of what God is. He doesn't want us to have God's made in our image. He wants to make us in his image. 
You understand that? He wants to remake us into his image. So why these tests? Why these tests? Well, to put it simply, these tests basically come to recenter, to reestablish, to recalibrate, to realign God back in our lives. I think there's a little bit of a clue in the text. Back in Genesis chapter 22, I'll, I'll just quote it to you. It basically says this. God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son. I think there's a clue there. And um, a lot of commentators try to speculate, you know, what does this mean? Is it, you know, because reality, most of us know, if you're familiar with the story, you realize that Abraham was not an only son. That Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. I was a little bit older. And the reality with that particular situation is some would say, well, you know, maybe God just does not recognize him and just does not see him even as a son. And, and I don't think that's the case either. I just think God just recognizes that his blessing is not going to come through Ishmael. So in, other, in other words, the whole blessing of God, the next generation of blessing is going to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. But the point that I would make is this, is there's something about, think about the story here. So Abraham was 75 years old when he kind of received the first call from God saying, I'm going to bless you, you're going to have a big nation, you're going to, have a, you're going to be the father of nations, not just one nation, but many nations. And the point kind of moving forward is when Abraham was 99 years old, his wife Sarah finally had a baby. Can you imagine waiting 25 years to receive the promise of having a little boy? Now you finally got your little boy. I mean, now for the next handful of years, maybe 20, 25, 30 years or so, we're not sure exactly how long. Can you imagine what Isaac was now to Abraham? Isaac was a blessing, wasn't he? Isaac was a promised child from God. It was a gift from God. It was a good gift from God. But here's my suggestion. I have a feeling, I have a hunch, that what had happened in Abraham's life that comes to the clue of the text, that this, his son, this good thing, became Abraham's only. His only. It's, it's, in other words, put it this way. The onlys that we all have in our lives, there are these things that maybe not, are not always verbalized or spoken, but we feel them, we think them, our hearts are in alignment with them. We live our lives in terms of a projection or a trajectory as to where we're going for these things. Like I said, we might not verbalize them the same, but we feel them. Here's what we say. If only I had a spouse. If only I had a job. If only I could get the world's record. If only I could get this particular career. If only I can graduate and keep going higher in my life. If only I can get prestige. If only I can buy a house on the Central Coast. If only I can have kids. These onlys that we have, that we cultivate and nurture in our own lives, they're oftentimes good things, not evil things. They're good things that are good things. But what ends up happening is they sort of become disproportionate to how big God is in our lives. They become the things in which we generate our emotion, our strength, and our might to obtain these things. We pursue these things. Our hearts go after them with all of our might, with all of our strength. And one of the best ways to try, really try to identify, do we have these onlys in our lives? Is to kind of look at it. Is when One of the best ways to identify these things is that if those onlys don't come to fruition, if we don't get them, or if they're prolonged, or if there's hope of one day getting them, and we don't get them, maybe, you know, you're kind of in a dating relationship, and you're thinking, maybe this will be my spouse, and it turns out, it breaks up, if everything's over, the, the relationship does not go on anymore, if it's an only, then you're in absolute despair. Your life is just totally gone to shambles. You're, you're absolutely despondent. The reason being is because when things are our onlys 
and not just good things given to us by a good God that we use to give glory back to God, but when they become our onlys, we become despondent when they're not there. We become desperate when we don't have them. So we fight for them with every bit of the fiber in our being. We keep trying to maintain them and hold on to them and to keep them and to fight for them when we don't have them. And when we're gone, everything's over. When they're gone and when they get broken, when something happens to them, when they're threatened, we're really frustrated. Satan is a master at taking good things in our lives and using the momentum of those things in our lives to destroy us. Um, I love mixed martial arts. I remember years ago, I started watching them right, right when it first began, like Ultimate Fighting Championship. Right at the beginning, there's this, there's this family called the Gracie Brothers. Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And these guys were masters. In fact, they actually changed all the rules today to meet, to, to meet because of what, what these guys had done. These guys would get in the ring. They were small guys. They weren't very big. And they would fight guys almost twice their size, and they would fight them for like an hour. They'd be in the ring for like 45 minutes, and they'd be them all tangled up. And, and these guys were masters at being able to take strength of their opponent and turn it around to destroy them, to tangle them up. That's exactly what Satan does with good things in our lives. You'll discover... You'll discover some of the most deviant, most destructive, most damnable things in our lives are not the grave sins that we commit. They're the good things that we have that have been elevated in place of God. Maybe an example. If you're a dude and pornography is your big deal, you know it. You know it. After you're done doing your thing, you're frustrated. You're bummed. You call your buddies up. You're like, dang, I blew it again. I need help. Could you pray for me? If you're a mom and you got this emotional thing going on or you're a lady, you got some sort of emotional connection with somebody else you know you shouldn't have or some sort of sin, there's an issue of sin in your heart you're dealing with and, and you know it, you feel it, you feel bad. But nobody feels bad for taking good things and raising them into the place of God. Those are your Isaacs. You understand? Those are your Isaacs. Those are the good things that become your onlys. And here's what God does. He allows these trials, these moments, to place us in between this tension of the promise and his command, and he basically says, I want your Isaac. I want your Isaac. Why? Why would God do something like this? Why would God ask for something so profoundly good in Abraham's life? Answer, it's because God wants to recenter himself to realign himself, his greatness, into Abraham's life once again. He does not want Abraham, because he loves him, to be an idolater. He loves him enough to say, we've got to recenter my greatness. This is about me, Abraham, not about Isaac. Isaac's a good thing. He's a blessing, and he fulfills my promise. But this is about me being great in your life. As we wrap this up, I want to look at the final thing is really just kind of asking the question, what does it look like to pass these tests? How do we do this? How do we pass these tests? There's two things I think you guys got to consider. Two things that we see here that Abraham does. The first thing that Abraham does is he considers God. He considers God. Second thing, I'll tell you right now, he looks to the Lamb. First thing, considers God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, it says this. And he, that's Abraham, considered that God was able 
in the rest part of verse 19, that he was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So I want you to think about this. So Abraham considers God. I mean, just that little phrase alone is pretty potent right there. It's like, consider God. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, you know, a weakling. We're not talking about something that is limited. God who is limited. We're talking about the limitless God. We're talking about God who's not impotent, but he's omnipotent. You understand? God is God. That's the point. And one of the things I think you look at Abraham's life, there are no other examples in his life up until this point, or even in the history of the Bible, of anybody ever being resurrected from the dead. So where did Abraham get this concept of resurrection? Because it says there in the verse in Hebrews that even Abraham assumed, or believed, or trusted, I should say, uh, that God, considered that God could raise him from the dead. First thing I would say is this, is that true faith, confidence in God, it's not blind leap. We're not just asking you or saying to you, God's not demanding of you to just jump out into the darkness, expecting that God's going to uphold you. Faith and confidence in God is actually logical. It makes sense. It does demand a leap, but not a blind leap. It's based upon who God is. We said this the very first week. Confidence, trust, faith in God is dependent upon the words of God that are fulfilled and the works of God that are powerful. If you have a weak view of God, if your picture of God is this despondent, he's kind of shriveled up, he's a little bit weak, he's tired a lot, uh, if that's your view of God, that's one of the reasons why we work so hard. It's one of the reasons why I think dudes, guys, why guys constantly work themselves to death. It's one of the reasons why God says, men, work six days, seven days, rest. It's God's way of saying, trust me. A man who doesn't trust God says, I gotta keep working, because if I don't stop working, the job won't get done. If the job doesn't get done, I won't get paid my bills. If I don't pay my bills, I can't get those big rims on my car. Life is gonna be horrible. God's saying, trust me. Don't you know that I'll take care of you? Work hard, but trust me. Take the seventh day, just rest. Hang out with your kids, play ball with them, enjoy time with your wife, go for a walk, enjoy creation. The point that I would make is this, is Abraham considered God. Earlier in the text, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was as good as dead. Literally says she was as good as dead. And God gave her a baby. Here's the thing I think Abraham's looking at. He's considering about God. If your view of Abraham is that he's had this long life of lots of successes, a lot of good things going on, you're wrong, <laughs> respectfully speaking. Abraham had a lot of difficulties in life. He failed a lot of times. Remember, he had sex with Hagar, had a baby that you know, wasn't part of the whole deal, um, dis- distrusted God at times when he went into a new kingdom. These guys were like, you know, who is this? Is this your wife? He's like, no, nope, not my wife, it's my sister. It's a whole other story, but the point would be is this, is that Abraham was not a perfect dude trusting God all the way through. But what Abraham did have is he had a series of mess-ups punctuated by a few moments of success where God blessed him. And I think Abraham's looking at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, and he realizes, you know what, God? Throughout my whole life, I've navigated this walk of trusting you and messing up my life, making Ishmael's. But the moments I've trusted you, I've seen you come through. And I don't know how you're gonna take the promise and synchronize it with the command. I don't know how you're gonna do it, 
But I saw you take my wife, who's 90 years old, whose womb was as good as dead, and you brought life into it. I don't know how you're going to do this, but what I do know is I know you're a big God. I know you're a great God. I know you can move mountains. I know you can raise dead wombs to life. And if you need to, if you need to, after Isaac's dead, you can probably raise him too. I'm going to go do it. I don't know how the promise is going to match up with the command, but I do know that every single time I failed to obey your command, I've always failed. I've always fouled things up. I've always messed my life up. But when I have obeyed your command, I've always been led to a path of blessing. Even though it looked like an apparent suicide mission leading to fruitlessness. You've always proven yourself faithful. And Abraham's like, I'm going to do it. If God says to do it, I'll do it. He must have something big that he's going to do. The second thing, wrap it up here, is that not only did he consider God, but he also looked to the lamb. In the book of uh, Hebrews, or I'm sorry, in the book of uh, Genesis, it tells us that he says, I and the ladder are going to go up, we're going to worship, and God ultimately will provide himself a lamb. So he has in his mind this concept that God's going to provide a lamb. I'm going to deal very quickly with the moral dilemma, the moral issue of Abraham being asked by God to offer up his son. Because in our culture, obviously, today, we would look at that and just be absolutely amazed as to how could God, if he's a good, loving God, why would God go out and say, kill, kill Isaac? What you need to understand very clearly is God is not saying to Isaac, go kill your son. Let me tell you what I mean. God could have said, Abraham, push your son off the cliff when he's not looking. He could have said, Abraham, go in in the middle of the night and slit your son's throat and bury him in a shallow grave. It's not, it's not what he's saying. He's not saying go kill your son. He's saying go offer your son as a sacrifice. Very important to understand this. Here's what's going on. In Jewish custom, Jewish culture, as well as uh, Middle Eastern culture in general, it's been always viewed, very patriarchal society, firstborn son has everything vested to him. Firstborn son has everything vested to him. All the inheritance goes to him. Everything. In other words, the, the old man is looking at his next generation saying, everything that I am will be passed down to my son, and my son will carry on my name for generations, hundreds, thousands of years to come. Everything that I have will be given to him, and then him to his sons, and so on and so forth, all the way down through the ages. And so, very important to understand this. But one thing you need to realize, I'll give you two verses that are actually identified up here. In, I don't know if you can see that. Exodus chapter 13, as well as uh, Numbers chapter 3. There's this... Uh, thing that's sort of inscribed within the law and it basically God says this you need to understand to the Jewish people that everybody who you know has a firstborn son every son that opens the womb literally that opens the womb of a of the woman of the mother that son belongs to me God says I I own them that your sons belong to me I ransom them I purchase them so if you want your son you got to buy him back it's very important. You can read those texts later on and check them out. But basically God says, look, if you have a son, I want you to come to me and you pay for him. So I think it's like around five or six shekels, something like that. Do you know in the book of uh, uh, Luke, in fact, it's, uh, I don't even have it written down here. I had it written down here. I don't know what happened to it. Anyways, in the book of Luke, uh, Mary and Joseph actually do this with Jesus. They take Jesus to the temple and they pay the shekels to purchase him back. This is just part of Jewish culture. And so God says, your son belongs to me. But you have this opportunity, this option of purchasing, buying him from me. So you go give the shekel, pay it, and then I'll give you your son. In this particular setting, they realize the reason why this is the case is because all men are sinners. 
Men have failed, men have sinned. We owe God something. We owe God something. And this was God's way of saying, you owe me something. You owe me your best. And in ancient Middle Eastern culture, your son was the best thing that you could have. And God says, you owe me your son. But in this case, God says, I'm not going to take payment for him. No shekels. I don't want it. I want you to take his life. Abraham's not freaking out because of the moralistic dilemma of how dare God ask me to kill my boy. That's the issue. Abraham knows I owe him to God. I owe him everything. I owe him my own life. The dilemma for Abraham is this. How could God take back the son through whom all blessings are going to come through if he wants me to sacrifice him that's the dilemma you understand that we read it with the western perspective and we're like freaked out how can god do this abraham's looking at it and saying i'm in a quandary god i don't get it i don't understand how you're gonna fulfill your promises if your command is to take my son's life what does abraham do he immediately saddles up the donkey and says isaac we got to go takes the wood, puts it on his back. They walk up to this hill that God shows them called Mount Moriah. They go up to the place. Abraham's about ready to offer his son as a sacrifice to God. At that very moment, in that instant, God stays his hand, says, don't kill your son. And it becomes this beautiful foreshadow of another father who takes his son to the very same mount, Mount Moriah, the very same mount where God himself will actually take his own son, his beloved son. Do you know, book of Genesis, this is the first time the word love ever appears in the entire Bible, is Genesis 22, ever. And it's in connection with a father offering up his son. That God, as a father, takes his own son to the same place, a Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered his son, and says, I will not stay my hand. I will not withhold my judgment. I will not stop halfway through I will go through all the way because somebody's got to pay the final price of all man's sin somebody's got to bring a conclusion to all this mess and what you need to understand is that the writers of the New Testament books look at the single event of Jesus dying on the cross as the foundational cornerstone of all of God's good blessing in your life. I want you to listen to these verses again as we wrap this up. Philippians chapter four, verse 19 says this. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. How does God supply the needs for your life? It's through Jesus. Listen to it. This might bring it even more poignant uh, point to this whole thing. Romans chapter eight thirty one says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us graciously all things? Do you understand that the point of what Paul is trying to say here is that because God did not spare his son but actually freely gave him up, this becomes the leveraging mark, leveraging spot for us to look at that every other blessing, every other promise of life given to us comes because 
God the Father who loved his own son didn't spare his son. Do you understand that? Every blessing, everything that God gives to us in our lives is meant to bring glory to himself and bring the maximum joy to us. And it's all at the expense of his own son. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So I want to finish with this thought because the reality is that we can look at our lives and sometimes we think God's greatest purpose in our lives or the greatest thing that I can use my energies to do or to accomplish is to scheme around and figure out how I can uphold or protect or keep my Isaacs. And yet in reality, if you can shift your thinking to think that the greatest thing is not somehow we can some keep our Isaacs, but it's how that we can get God. God doesn't want us to be idolaters. He wants us for us to be worshipers. Because God knows that if we become idolaters, if we put our hope and our basis of faith and confidence in our Isaacs, they will fracture. They will break. They will let us down. Because God, as a heavenly father, loves us. He says, no, what I want you to do is I want you to put your faith and confidence and trust in a foundation that will never break. I understand your trials are hard. Everybody's trials are difficult. The weightiness of these things are big. But what you need to understand that even though your trials may be long and hard and difficult and painful, the reality is, is that God is big. Eternity is long. And the Spirit's here with us. And it's so demonstrated through the cross that even though hardships and trials may be weighty, the weight of glory far surpasses that which is encountering by you, by the circumstances in your life right now. God is even bigger than those things. That's the message that the writer of Hebrews wants for us to see. Is that he who did not even spare his own son for us, has freely offered up and freely promised to give us all things, all riches to us in Christ Jesus. So my encouragement to you right now in this life, as you think about these things that you're going through, the trials, the testings of faith. Where are you at? Sort of in that fulcrum point between the promises of God and the commands of God. Look at how Abraham did it. Trust God. Trust God. Look back to the cross. Look forward to what God has in promise in store for those who love him. Press on in to Jesus. We're going to have Evan come on up. We're going to sing some songs of worship. We're going to sing to God. So what we do, you know, when we realize how big something is or how great God is, we sing to him. We love God. We're going to confess sin. What I want to do before we jump in right now is I want to do something very quickly here. Because I know that sometimes, um, you know, people respond to things like this and their hearts are overwhelmed with certain stuff that may be going on. And we don't do this very often, but what I, what I want to do right now is I want to find out if there's anybody here right now that's kind of going through some gnarly trials, gnarly stuff that's going on in your life right now. You don't need to tell us what it is. We don't want to know. Um, right now, I don't. I mean, obviously, it's private for you guys, and so you guys want to, you know, maybe disclose that to other people that you might feel safe with. But what I want to do right now is I, I want to pray for you guys. I want to pray for you. And as a church, we want to pray for you. So I, I want to just ask if that's you here today, if you find yourself sort of navigating between the promises of God, living in the promises of God, and finding yourself in conflict with the commands of God. And you find yourself in that trial. And you just need prayer. It's hot, it's difficult, it's hard. You just need someone to lift you up. What I want you to do right now is, uh, I just want you to stand up where you're at, and it's kind of weird. It 
don't make it weird. This is church. We love you guys. We want to pray for you. And we just want to have people that are around you, lay hands on you. I'm going to pray, just a prayer. And then as soon as we're done with that, we're just going to sing some songs of worship. We'll partake of communion. Uh, We'll eat the bread and drink the cup and remember what Christ did for us on the cross. We'll give our tithes and our offerings to Jesus. We'll sing some songs. We'll confess sin. So like I said, if you're here, that's you. Maybe things that you're going through in your life right now that are trialsome, hard. You just want people to pray for you. Anybody at all just want to stand up right now? All we want to do is pray for you. Grab some people around you and they'll pray for you. Anybody? Cool, thank you. Thanks, guys. You guys are awesome. Appreciate it, honesty. Cool. Anybody else? Just stand right where you're at. The bottom line is, is, is God knows what's going on in your lives. Um, you know, it's, we're, we're all imperfect. We're all imperfect. We all need help. We all need people to come alongside us. Um, that's, that's what we're here for. That's what church is. You shouldn't, you shouldn't feel like weird about standing up in church and be praying for it and stuff. Anybody else? Just stand up. Okay, how about um, you guys seeing these people stand up? Um, if you're sitting around them, why don't you just stand up too with them? Stand with them and lay hands on them. We're going to lay hands on you guys because we love you. So our way of just saying we love you. We're surrounding you as a body. Um, and I'm going to pray for you guys right now. And then we're going to sing some songs of worship and give our tithes and our offerings and consider how big our God is and respond to him by singing and confessing sin. So Jesus, right now I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that are going through various forms of trials, hardships, difficulties, struggles. And Lord, I ask right now that you would uh, sustain them and uphold them. I pray that even now that you would help them to see and consider uh, the bigness of God, the vastness of God, that Lord, you're not, your hand's not short. Your promises are not limited. Your ways are not constrained. So, Father, I pray right now that you'd help my brothers and sisters to see how big you are and trust you and respond to you. Lift them up, God. You know the circumstances that they're going through. Pray that you would just help them to know that they're loved and they're prayed for here. So, God, even right now as we respond to you, as we sing to you, help us just to lift up our voices, our hearts, our songs in praise and love and worship to you because you're a worthy God. You're a great God that's worthy of song, that's worthy of the confession of our sin, that's worthy of our adoration, of our affection, and of our praise. And even, you're worthy of our Isaacs. So God, I pray right now that even for us, as we think about what Isaacs are that we may have in our life, that we would even bring those to you, lay them down on your feet, and say, Lord, we want you. We want you. Ultimately, finally, beyond all other things. We 